Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. We're just a few days away from the start of the 2017 Formula One season at Albert Park. And after eight days of pre-season testing, there's plenty of buzz surrounding whether or not Ferrari's pace is real, or if this will just be another Mercedes walkover. My name is Ed Straw, Editor-in-Chief of Autosport, and joining me today is Autosport.com Editor Glenn Freeman, who was implicated in a fake news controversy during the first test, I believe. Uh, yeah, fake news and easy headlines, I think, were McLaren's response to negative stories about them in the first fake test. Fake news. You look like you've got small hands to me, Mr. Trump. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm currently doing the OK symbol, so it's all good. I believe uh, there was, I believe there was a suggestion that having blamed Honda for all the problems, that uh, yourself and Gary Anderson watching trackside may have noticed that the McLaren chassis might not be quite all it's cracked up to be. Uh, no, it was frightening at times to watch actually, and there were plenty of things that car was doing that you can't blame on the engine, whether they like to or not. But as I say, fake news and easy headlines. So I'm expecting them to be on the front row in Australia. They are producing some quite easy headlines for us, fortunately. It's uh, it's a shame, but there's always there's always plenty of people wanting to hear why why a great team is struggling. We also have Stuart Codling, whose dulcet tones you've already briefly heard. He's fresh from a, a dramatic relaunch of F1 Racing magazine, the results of which are available in all good news agents now. Looks like a lot of hard work's gone into that. Massive amount of hard work, um, chiefly by our graphic design department. The rest of us kind of just did what we normally do. But uh, yeah, the graphic designers have been great. And uh, we've got much thicker paper. So 
uh, th those of you who are late getting your subscription copies, make sure small children and pets are cleared away from the doormat because it lands with quite a thunk because uh, this is a slightly bigger issue, it being our season preview issue of uh, about 140 pages. We'll be slightly slimming down back to the normal page count next month, but uh, it will still be on the luxurious paper with the matte cover, which is much easier to photograph for social media purposes. Well, that's always important, given you're uh, involved in plenty of F1 Racing's Twitter output. So if you're, if you're following, what is it, at F1 Racing? F it is at F1 Racing underscore mag. And obviously I don't do all of it. Plausible deniability, but uh, you, I do you some do, of it. You do the funny comments normally, the amusing and wry observations. Yeah, maybe some of, some of those. I wouldn't lay sole claim to everything. Uh, as you can see, I'm, I'm creating a little bit of a get-out clause in case I accidentally drop a really big legal bomb one day. So if it's fake news, it wasn't you, it was someone else. Fake news, it'll be someone else. Probably me. <laughs> exactly, you are the fake news specialist. Well, we all know testing times in isolation don't mean a great deal. Ferrari set the fastest lap during eight days of testing at Barcelona with Kimi Raikkonen's 1 minute 18.634 seconds, fastest of all. The Ferrari looks pretty honest and true when you watch it from trackside as well, so it's, it's looking good for them. But, Glenn, what do you reckon? Are, are Ferrari a serious Mercedes contender or are we in a place we've been before and Ferrari just flattering to deceive? Well, the first thing I want to know is what an honest and true Formula 1 car is. Does that mean all the others are lying? Yeah, you can turn your back on it. You can leave your wallet near it, and it won't so it won't grab it. You can't trust Sauber near your wallet. Whereas the Ferrari's too busy staying on the racing line and going quite quickly, and so that's what an honest and true car is. Exactly. Whereas if you watch watch through turn three, the Sauber was struggling a bit for grip. Not quite so uh, so honest and true. Although uh, I wouldn't want to suggest that Sauber have any uh, wallet stealing tendencies, really. Well, they don't need to now, do they? They've got uh, Sugar Daddy uh, Swiss based to uh, supply all all funding needs. Yes, it's. Uh, Going quite well for Sauber now, although we've got a little bit carried away. Shall I answer your question? Well, I think we need to get back onto Ferrari. We've gone straight for the big guns. We're talking about Sauber, but I want to save that for later in yeah, the podcast. You, you'll we, we've never got... be replacing Lord Bragg on in our time. You've uh, you, you've divested. You've, you've completely <laughs> gone off track yourself. No, no need to get the guests back on track. Offered a spectacular tangent. So, Glenn, to, to answer the question, Ferrari real or is it fake news? Ferrari are real, definitely. Um, I think their pace might be real as well. It's it's unlikely that they've got. That anyone's going to have an advantage other than Mercedes, I'd say, but maybe we've got a better chance this year than we had last year of someone being at that level. The Ferrari did look phenomenal during testing, and I think you're right to say that looking at a time in isolation means very little, but if we're judging Ferrari's performance across eight days of testing, we're not really talking in isolation anymore because no matter what they were doing, which tyre they were on, long runs, short runs, it looked good all the time. So we must have seen a variety of fuel loads and different programs that they were working. Obviously, Mercedes could have been running a bit detuned in the engine stakes and maybe heavier on the long runs. But by all accounts, and from what I think we all saw in person at Barcelona, um, yeah, Ferrari looked a lot better than I was expecting. I actually expected the trend of 2016 to have carried on and them to continue falling off that cliff they were heading towards. But they really have turned it around. Let's just hope it's enough, really, talking as a neutral. You make a very interesting point about Ferrari because it's very easy to say that they're the past masters of looking quick in pre-season testing. And you look all the way back to, I don't know, 1991, where uh, they were fastest. And by the end of the year, Prost had got himself fired for saying the car drove like a lorry or whatever. So I, ha it, I have it, to it, chip in there and say that actually, having looked at the context of that quote, you're quite right, that's the way it's always done. But actually... We did he, a feature on exactly this. Exactly, he did. But he actually said at the time that it handled like a truck because. after it had a, a shock absorber problem. 
it was a specific technical oh, problem. Nuance. So it was it was a complete excuse. But yeah, like you, for years I I believed that. But then when you look back at it. It just shows even more than we thought it was a, a political thing. But anyway, you can yeah. carry on uh, on uh, the point. Journalists in those days did such a terrible job, didn't they, before <laughs> we were around. But the the fact is that those days, very few people went to testing. So you would get a fax at the end of the day or smoke signals saying who did what time. And uh, certain teams would, would use that as a means of demonstrating progress or otherwise. Nowadays, we can go to the circuit and look at what the cars are doing and examine their behavior. And, and as Glenn points out, you look at the way a car is behaving over the course of a stint when it's obviously got different tires on, different fuel loads going on, because w when you see a car going round lap after lap after lap, it's not running on vapors. Going back to what you're saying there about teams used to be able to play games. The last one I remember most spectacularly was probably Prost just after the turn of the century when they didn't have any sponsors and didn't last much longer after that. But yet, the big thing actually is how Ferrari handled testing last year. They were constantly throwing the softest tyres at it, constantly doing these short runs. We got our hopes up, everyone got their hopes up, but comparing to how they approached it this year, it now makes the 2016 approach look like they were almost trying to kid themselves that they were in the game. And there was none of that this time. It became a running joke in testing that all the Ferraris left the pits. So you better see what tyres it's on. Of course, it's on the mediums. They... They were doing all of their work on the mediums and then occasionally, more so in the second week than the first, the approach from last year was gone, basically, and I hope that's a good sign. kind of begs the question uh, of how much tyre management is actually going to be a factor this year. Yeah, I think um, Pirelli aren't convinced that tyre management is gone, which supposedly was the aim, but it, it does appear to be reduced. We've obviously got the difficult situation that track temperatures were quite low in Spain, so we've got to see, you know, they might get to Bahrain and be eating through their rear tyres like they always do because of the heat. But, yeah, the aim is to have got rid of that. The tyres look fantastic. Um, you know, the cars look great now out on track, I'd, I'd say, with the, the wider tyres and all that sort of thing. So, let's see. I, I think it could certainly give us some boring races if the tyres are consistent all the way through. I mean, 2010 with the Bridgestone tyres was looked back on very fondly, but actually there were plenty of races where not a lot happened. So this brings us back to the Ferrari point, which is we need another team up there battling with Mercedes because then even if you have got rock-hard tyres, things happen strategically and you're going to get more battles. So, you know, the more teams the merrier at the front, Ferrari, it would seem a best place to do that um, to give Mercedes some sort of challenge. But let's see how much Mercedes kept up its sleeve, I think. I think the interesting thing with Ferrari, and we have talked about it, but I think it's worth really hammering home. When we're talking about what the car looks like trackside, talks about the kind of lap time ranges it's operating in but it's a car that brakes well it turns in well it's not breaking away mid-corner they can carry speed into the long fast turn three they're not running out of grip the rear's not misbehaving they're not getting oversteer understeer and this is in a, a wide range of a wide range of conditions and this you cannot fake that yes fresh tires etc low fuel can cover some vices in a car but the Ferrari consistently look very impressive on track and well balanced and well conceived I think the the real the time you learn something about the cars in testing is when they're on a longer run, so you know they've got a bit more fuel, and when the tyres start to go away, ideally on one of the harder compounds as well. Because like you say, a set of ultra softs and three laps worth of fuel is going to make almost any car, probably except the McLaren or the Sauber, look good. The Ferrari was out at one point when I was trackside. It was on a long run on mediums. Mercedes was on a long run on mediums with Hamilton at the wheel. And the Ferrari just... You couldn't see anything giving up. You couldn't see... 
uh, Vettel, I think it was, having to be any less positive through the sort of switchback of turns one and two, no less committed into turn three. The Mercedes was starting to give away, mainly at the front end. And when Lewis came in for a set of softs, like you say, that, that tended to cure all the problems and the, the Merc looked fine again. Whereas the Ferrari didn't need fresh tyres or softer tyres to make it look good. It looked good all the time. And you'd imagine that Mercedes can probably work on the problems that, that the car had. I mean, it's probably unfair to call them problems. Very, very small details that only stood out because it was on track at the same time as the Ferrari, which looked amazing. It's nuances like that that make the difference over a race distance, though, isn't it? It was also interesting to compare the ride of the cars. I was watching on one of the days at the first test at Campser, the fast uphill right-hander, and the Mercedes was on a long run and the Ferrari was out as well doing a similar thing. And actually, the, the Mercedes, on the approach to that corner and turn in, it was, it was bump bouncing a lot. It seems to be much less compliant and having to run stiffer. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it's interesting that it just seemed harder work. I think it was Bottas who was driving at the time. It just seemed to be a little bit harder work and there's these sort of little traces of understeer. You know, these are tiny things, as you were saying, little nuances. But I think we can safely assume that to say the Mercedes is perfection and the Ferrari is flattering to deceive is definitely an incorrect interpretation of what's going on. But it's where where these two converge. We haven't talked a great deal about Mercedes. So what are we all thinking? Is Mercedes the favourite going into the weekend as champions? Of course they are, but factoring and testing as well. Are we all expecting a Mercedes front row and it's still a bit of a surprise if Ferrari beat them? I think so. Yeah, I mean, at this time of year, I've always got people asking me for for tips for uh, which bets they should be putting on. It hasn't been much fun recently. I did manage to tip a few people off about Mercedes in 2014. My advice to those people this year is if you want a slightly long shot that might be worth going for, go for Ferrari. But, you know, I've if I had to if I had to spend someone else's money, I'd probably still put it on Hamilton uh, and Mercedes. So, yeah, they do go in as favorite mainly because of what they've done over the last 3 years. I think this regulation change is is big in some places but we haven't completely torn up the fundamentals of the previous rule book and i am expecting mercedes to you know have a bit of engine power still up their sleeve i imagine you know there are a couple of reliability worries perhaps during testing a few things they were working with that they are taking to australia but i imagine that was running relatively detuned for the purposes of testing Ferrari might have been doing the same. Apparently, they ran the same engine all the way through the tests, which is interesting. But yeah, I think Mercedes have to be the favourite. Um, and really, again, speaking as neutrals, it's almost unfair for us to want them to all be knocked off their perch. But we just want something interesting to happen. Would be nice to have some new storylines, wouldn't it? And maybe when we get to Melbourne, well, those of us who are going to Melbourne get to Melbourne, uh, there will be some new things to talk about because a lot of those teams are going to be bringing developments that we didn't see in the test and and anything can happen you, you think back to australia 2014 when you had um, a 50p component uh, break on lewis's car that put him out you had the red bulls coming through and then all of a sudden being excluded because of jiggery pokery or otherwise with the uh, fuel metering things can happen in australia because people have been people have been off for the past the past three or four months and they're out of that kind of week in week out race discipline so it is like the first day back at school and things can go wrong on the other hand you don't want to be like that guy who um, put half a million quid on the favorite at Cheltenham last week and the horse fell 
I'd quite like to be the person who can afford to put half a million on a horse, though, and maybe just not do it. That was a Could show. Could the guy bet. afford it, though? Uh, that, <laughs> that, that was a show bet. That was probably, I, I can just throw half a million away on a horse. Cover your bets, I think, is the thing. If, if, you, if you are the sort of person who likes to bet on the outcome of races, um, you, you need to have your covering in, don't you? So, by all means, um, bet on Hamilton. Although, why you'd actually want to bet on the favourite, I don't know, because it's not really worth the risk. Sticking each way on uh, one of the other people that we might just be about to discuss. Well, we'll have a look at the odds, actually. I was going to come to them a bit later, but seeing as everyone's been getting into, into betting odds, Lewis Hamilton currently listed with one popular betting site as Evans, Sebastian Vettel 11-4, to Valtteri Bottas 11-2, to Kimi Räikkönen 15-2, to and then the Red Bull drivers, Verstappen and Ricciardo 9-10-1. and 10 to 1. Valtteri Bottas 11-2, to 2. That's, not, that's not a bad each way, yeah? each way one. You can make yeah, you, on that. you would go for each way on that, wouldn't you? The point you made was valid about upgrades for Australia. That's the thing we really don't know. Everyone's going to have some bits, but let's say... For the sake of argument, Ferrari's place is exactly what it looks like. They're on a par with Mercedes, or maybe they've even got a tenth in their pocket. But that could all change depending on how much is thrown at the car. It could just be that Ferrari's a little bit further down the line with releasing parts and having them on the car for testing. They won't have so much. So all of this can change, and a, and a big upgrade package bolted onto the car can make a big difference. And that's kind of what, I guess, Red Bull will be hoping. Can make a big in. difference either way, can't it? Well, like Williams, <laughs> right. uh, whatever they put on the car last year didn't really work. Yeah, sometimes. Well, but sometimes. that happened to Mercedes in testing, didn't it? Nicky Lauda yep. sort of let slip that there were a few parts they'd put on the car that hadn't worked. So that might mean that Mercedes goes to Australia with a big update package that it's not quite as confident in as it may have been in years past. I think there's a bit of a myth that Mercedes can't upgrade a car through a season. Yeah, we... If you plot the performance over three years of the last rules cycle, you found that people didn't actually get that much closer. And you'd imagine that when the engines got closer, Merck were just able to throw quite a lot more at the aero side of things. And, and they did keep ahead. So there is a, I would expect Mercedes to be able to at least keep pace with those teams if they are hot on their heels from the start of the season. It's also worth noting that the second half of last season, when Red Bull seemed to be inching up, Mercedes were fairly happy to see that because they were throwing the kitchen sink at this car. And Red Bull were carrying on. A similar thing happened in 2013, if you think about it. August break, Mercedes, albeit with tyre management troubles, were similar place to Red Bull. But then post-break, Red Bull were just away. Sebastian the tyres changed as well, didn't they, after those failures? Uh, yeah, they, they did. They did. But Mercedes' development pace dropped off So because they were investing in, in 14, which which proved to be a, a very a very shrewd move. can put you in a bad place, can't it? Um, throwing all your resource at in-season development you look back to 08 where Ferrari and McLaren were really going at one another for the driver's title and the constructor's title and both of them were pretty much nowhere the following season it was quite embarrassing for them wasn't it I think that's one of the things people were maybe hoping was going to happen this time which is why I reference that the rule change isn't overly fundamental you know one thing we have established in testing is it's the same top three teams at the front and if anything the gap to everybody else has got bigger because they've had more resource to throw at the, the new rules. And I guess the real question is if it's a three-way fight at the front or if Red Bull are going to be slightly cut adrift to begin with. They're not. They're keeping their cards reasonably close to their chest, but I guess you'd expect them to do that, particularly if they've got some Adrian Newey tricks ready to roll out for Australia. Exactly, and there's also the question of the Renault engine, or the Tag Heuer engine, as uh, people keep saying we should call it. But uh, as I keep saying, we'll call it a Renault because it's a Renault. I think Red Bull are going to be a slow burner, aren't they? Verstappen has already said that he doesn't think they can fight for victory at the start of the year. It can change. Isn't that a bit disappointing, though? Like, we've just spent... We spent last year rebuilding after the mess of 14 and 15 and, you know, got themselves back on back on track above Ferrari and the constructors, rebuilt 
the team, rebuilt everything around going for these rules, and now they're saying, oh, we won't really be in the mix to begin with. That's that's a failure, isn't it? Sounds Pretty like much. they're conditioning the market, really, doesn't it? <laughs> manage manage the expectations. I think it's a bit it's disappointing on the Renault side, and you'd expect something better. Uh, it could be they're just bluffing, and there's a big upgrade coming for Australia, and they're going to take off at the front. But it's amazing, really, because a couple of months ago you just said, "Yeah, Red Bull's the team to challenge," and now we're all talking about Ferrari. Who are we thinking? Well, if Ferrari's not careful; they'll be messing about with Williams and Force India. Featherbats. It's amazing how much stuff can change, and stuff could change in the next in the next few days. It's the it's the usual thing, isn't it? It's not until you get into qualifying in the race in the first race that you. Now, something you really will happen this happening. weekend that makes whatever we're saying right now a few days before the Australian Grand Prix look ridiculous. So don't listen to this if it's after the first race. Exactly. Well, the thing <laughs> yeah. is, you, you can only go on the evidence as it is at a given time. Yeah, things will change, and anything that's incorrect in what we've said is just things changing. It'd be nice for small margins to make the difference at the front this year, wouldn't it? We haven't had that for a while. Yeah, and to make it really critical for drivers not to leave any time at all on on the table in qualifying, you would see kind of a little bit more on the knife edge there, wouldn't you? Which we've only really seen up front. Um, between Rosberg and Hamilton over the past couple of years, that real knife edge stuff. That's what you want to see. And also, with the cars being a little bit harder to drive, some drivers have been caught out. You know, Kevin Magnussen had a brush with the wall, Valtteri Bottas slapped the wall during the first test. So there have been a few people putting it in the gravel. So it can be a little bit more critical at times if it does go wrong. So obviously you've got more downforce, but when you just get beyond that limit, it can uh, it can bite you and you're carrying a little bit more speed, etc. So uh if you have a proper qualifying battle like that, could show up the odd error. But the <laughs> the counter argument to that is smaller errors get covered up more as well. You know, grip, downforce can be your friend. So maybe uh, it, it depends on the magnitude of the of the error, I guess. Obviously, one of the things we haven't really talked about yet is the drivers specifically. We've talked a lot about teams. The big driver story this year is Valtteri Bottas, who is dropped in at Mercedes in uh, in place of the retired Nico Rosberg. Jonathan Noble caught up with Valtteri Bottas before testing. So uh, here's Valtteri talking a little bit about his his approach and the challenges he's expecting at Mercedes this year. My goal is definitely to perform from the very first race uh, on the on the level of the car and on the level what the team is going to be expecting. If it takes a bit of time, there's no drama um, as there is so many new new things and um, Lewis has been with the team for, for a long time and I know being long time with Williams, I know how beneficial it can be to be in, in the same team for, for a long time and getting to, to know everyone that well and know the, how the team works exactly in terms of uh, you know how the team operates the track, what kind of setup changes you do and what kind of things you've faced in the past and uh, got some experience from those for the, the setups and all these things. It, 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 that's going to definitely help Lewis but uh, um, yeah I just need to learn learn quickly but uh, my my goal is to be on it in the, in the first race you're nervous about it at all yeah I'm, I'm not nervous mm. uh, at all I've not been at any point really um, I know I can do it I just want want to get everything started um, I think the main thing for me is just to just to you know, just to uh, always remind myself that there's no help at all if I start to put pressure on myself mm. um, or taking pressure outside because it doesn't help it at all. And I've experienced that, so I just need to trust trust my skills and uh, go day by day and uh, 
uh, race weekend by by race weekend um, do every single bit perfectly just drive the wheels off off the car and uh, it's very simple in the end do you feel that you can compartmentalize any kind of strengths and weaknesses in your armory do you feel any areas that you kind of you need mm. to focus on to lift if you're going to go in there and take take on lewis from race one uh yes uh, during the last month i would say i have thought about a lot a lot about my strengths and my weaknesses i've been working quite a lot to fix any weaknesses and uh, to make any strengths better with, with with the team i think um some things like uh, at, at times first lap performances in terms of gaining how much you gain or lose positions um it could have been a lot better um sometimes it was very bad actually and uh, i've been analyzing those kind of things in very very detail and uh, i know it's exactly the reasons for all of the mistakes i've done in in formula one for all of the things that i could have done slightly better i know how it can be done and um, i always want to face any any issues and uh, that's the way way to improve i think so um, and like I said, yeah, with the strengths, I just want to make them them better. <laughs> yeah. Is this the most exciting time you've ever had in your career? Is this? Uh, definitely, yeah. Well, of course, you know, starting the first year in in Formula One, that was really really exciting. Having the first race, uh, that was very special. But um, yeah, this is this is quite something <laughs> when you know that actually you could have the possibility to fight for the title, and uh, that's what I've always wanted. So Valtteri is, uh, he sounds confident, but he's definitely not underestimating the challenge. You don't go up against Lewis Hamilton and expect an easy time. So he knows he's got to leave absolutely nothing on the table. What are we expecting from Valtteri Bottas? He says he's aiming to hit the ground running and have a strong performance in Australia. But do do we think he's going to be Hamilton bothering? Easy to say that, isn't it? Uh, I don't know where to put Valtteri Bottas in the pantheon of racing drivers because... Every time I've ever watched Trackside, I've generally been impressed by him. And I remember when um, we were, where, where were we at? We were in Mexico, weren't we? And we oh, were, in FP1, yeah. we, we, went, we went along in FP1. And we were, we were talking about Bottas quite specifically for a while because he does look very smooth and really nailed on as he, drive, as he drove that Williams. And yet... What were the results? Just he didn't seem to go anywhere in in races except backwards. Part of that you could put down to the weakness of the Williams package, operational blunders by the team. But part of it is he, he just seems to have been a little bit underwhelming, and he didn't blow away Felipe Massa, who you know has been in Formula One for a season or two too long. Lovely guy, but um, he was the next great hope sixteen years ago. So I, I don't really see, I don't really see Valtteri posing an enormous challenge to Lewis at the beginning. And also, something else you have to factor in is it's very easy to become accustomed to driving a car that's kind of top ten material, and you end up just doing your best. And if your best is P8 or P9, and you're a little bit faster than your teammate, some people can start to think that's job done and they get into a comfort zone. And one thing Valtteri isn't going to be in 
for the first few races is a comfort zone because he will now be expected to be P1 or P2. And if he comes below that, he won't just be facing questions from within the team. Uh, he will become the story in the eyes of the media and we'll all be beating a path to the Mercedes motorhome for uh, going on what the contents of my inbox this morning will be a slightly new press conference schedule uh, <laughs> where they were, will be less available to those of us in print. But we will be pitching the questions nonetheless. Well, it is. It's literally make or break for Valtteri Bottas. 2017 will dictate the path of the rest of his career. Yeah, he's exposed. And as much as people are saying maybe he'll take a bit of time to get up to speed and then it'll be OK later in the year, I don't actually think that would be good enough. Because, you know, if we get to the Spanish Grand Prix in May and he hasn't really turned it on yet, you know, there are plenty of drivers out of contract who are going to fancy that Mercedes seat. And Mercedes will probably say, if he's the real deal, he'll be good from the off. We've seen enough drivers who have come in with... You know, not even necessarily F1 experience who get into a top car and deliver straight away. So he's got to do that. Is he capable of that? I would I would hope that he is. I've, I've covered quite a bit of his junior career and he really was one of the leading lights on the ladder during that time. I think the point Codder's made about driving a midfield car for too long, that, that is a worry for me. I think Nico Hulkenberg's fallen uh, for that one a little bit as well. If you look at how he drove when he got into an LMP1 Porsche at Le Mans, he came alive again and suddenly I thought, this is the guy I covered in, in GP2 and Formula 3 who looked dominant, who looked brilliant, who looked like, as he was billed at the time, another Michael Schumacher. And he actually came off of the Le Mans victory and drove really well for Force India for a few races, then seemed to fall back into the midfield routine. So, yeah, I think Valtteri's got to shake any of that feeling off from Williams. And I do believe that, you know, I've got faith that he, he probably can do it, but I believe he has to do it from day one. Because Mercedes are a top, top team and they don't need a sort of a number 1.5 driver. They need two number ones, really. And if we go for that scenario where if, if, if things don't go well for him in Melbourne, questions start to be asked. Um, he will be probably be among those people asking those questions, won't he? Because how you deal with failure in many ways defines you as a racing driver. Some Some drivers deal with it terribly and you end up being like, Ivan Capelli at Ferrari, that, that was something that destroyed his career, moving to an, in theory, top team. They did have an inferior product at the time, but it, it, it can really destroy you once the momentum has gone against you. I think the positive thing for Valtteri is basically, this is exactly what he's here for, isn't he? You know, you're a top sportsman. You want to be in the best situation. You want to be exposed to the best opposition. You want to have to say, right, I've got to do absolutely the best job to show I can do it. I will succeed or I will fail based upon what I do. So he's got that opportunity there. If in the first four races he hasn't delivered at a decent level, you know, he can afford maybe a bad Australian Grand Prix, by which I mean one where he's not that close to Hamilton's level. But he needs to be, he doesn't need to be beating Hamilton because it's, it's pretty unrealistic to expect any driver just to drop in and beat Lewis Hamilton just like that. But he needs to be thereabouts at worst, you know, picking up, picking up wins, consistent podiums, scoring heavily, basically straight away. It could be his Mika Hakkinen moment, yeah, by exactly. which I mean 1998, not uh, when he decided he wanted to quit. You, know, you, you tug around in the midfield for a few years in inadequate machinery, then you get your hands on something tasty and uh, it, it lights up your career. It's a nicer story, for, nicer story for us, isn't it, that if that happens, than for him to open a mental door and find Giancarlo Fisichella standing behind it, because no one wants to end up like him. <laughs> that would be three-time Grand Prix winner Giancarlo Fisichella he's, he's not had a bad career he was hailed as a genius by uh, our former editor uh, <laughs> greatest driver in Formula 1 
and I think in balance as underwhelming a uh, top flight Formula <laughs> One career uh, as any, with the possible exception of Jarno Trulli. A, uh, I would say Giancarlo was a, was a brilliant driver in a bad car on his day. Jensen yes. Button said that last year. He was his teammate in the terrible Benetton at the start of 01. And he said, you can't get near him in a bad car. And then when the car's good, he can't find that extra level that the top guys find. Whereas, of course, Jano Trulli was a brilliant driver in a perfect car. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's the mystery of Italian racing This drivers. is a separate podcast, isn't it? We where, should where do this. Where does Carlo Gonzani fit in this? In this That's special? tricky, isn't it? Paolo Barilla. Okay, <laughs> minute that. Pasta. We'll come back. Yeah. F1's finest pasta uh, seller. Whereas, yeah, I, I, I think Jarno Trulli was past his best. <laughs> well, he's into his wine now, isn't he, Trulli wine? I think we may have digressed. We talked about Bottas a little bit. Lewis Hamilton, obviously, didn't win the World Championship last year. He wasn't delighted about that. Malaysia engine hadn't gone. He'd have won the World Championship. Maybe if he'd fluffed a few fewer starts, he might have won the championship. So what do we think from, from Lewis Hamilton? Is there a... He's always talking about, you know taking strength from things do we think that the fact that he missed out last year will have made sure there's no risk of a, of a bit of a loss of motivation and he's going to want to go in there and boss the team and and dominate or is it still going to be the sort of the Lewis Hamilton we've seen before where he's mostly a genius but just every now and again you sort of wonder whether his mind's completely on it he's, he's a strange case sometimes is Lewis and um, I don't know if, if you've experienced or observed similar cases but many people who spout self-help stuff by which I mean the kind of stuff you read in books that you find in the mind body and soul section of Waterstones if if you're inclined that way or uh, other bookshops are available people spout in in their relaxed mode people find it very easy to spout feel-good banter about being in the right mental space and finding their zone or whatever it is that uh, you find in these books when the pressure's on they just react as they otherwise would because it's instinct so sometimes you you see lewis being quite brittle particularly around that engine failure he had in malaysia last year and all the self-help nonsense in the world won't help you if something like that happens and instead of you know do it make, making the little okay sign with your hands and going om and smiling at the media and saying bland things in a press conference afterwards you spectacularly throw your to- toys out the pram and suggest via your social media channels that you're being nobbled by your team uh, you you can't have one or the other you you need to either be mentally adjusted that way or just be a racing driver and carry on with it. Is this why the F1 racing Twitter often just goes, um... <laughs> I have to get myself into the space. <laughs> now, now we understand. It's even better once you've got GIFs. <laughs> oh, I hate GIF. GIFs. I think um, there are two types of Lewis Hamilton, as Codders so eloquently explained there. I think it's pretty obvious as well which one of those is the real Lewis. And that's not really a criticism. I'd, I'd much rather see people be themselves, even if that version of themselves is maybe a bit more a bit more prickly than some people would like. And yeah, when you can get the real Lewis Hamilton, there's actually quite an interesting person there and a fascinating character. It's it's the one you get all the rest of the time that's quite boring. And you think, you're not the same guy that burst onto the scene 10 years ago now. But the, the, I think the really interesting thing now is how he fares without Rosberg in the opposite corner. Does Lewis take strength from that? And, um, you know, just dominate the team now. Don't let Bottas get a look in before he's even had a chance. Ayrton Senna famously said, didn't he, that he struggled to find the motivation once Alain Prost had gone. I'm not saying that Hamilton Rosberg was Senna Prost. You know, we all tried to compare it to try and make it sound interesting while it was going on. But there is that thing of 
Hamilton was clearly driven by trying to defeat Rosberg and the history they had, the friendship they had that dated back to when they were when they were kids. He's got a different dynamic to deal with now. He's dealt with an inferior teammate in the form of Heike Kovalainen before and won a world championship. So let's see what he does. I think if he needs a rivalry to get him going, he probably needs Ferrari or something like that to produce a car that gives him someone to really fight with. I would imagine he still feels that he's got enough years ahead of him that he's determined right now to keep adding to those records that he's putting down at the moment in his career. And I suspect we're going to see him very fired up by the fact that he felt robbed last season. So uh, at the moment, I am expecting a, a strong, fired up Lewis Hamilton. Well, the interesting thing is, obviously, it's not realistic to expect Bottas in his first season to, to beat Hamilton. If he does... It'll be why not? Hamilton did it to Alonso effectively. Well, they tied on points in the end, I think. Yeah, I think uh, flat out. Yeah, no, yeah, he, he did. Right. But I think also Hamilton is very much at home and ensconced in Mercedes. And I think in terms of what would be a good, a good season for Bottas would be he needs to be close. He can't be three tenths a lap slower every weekend. He's certainly got to beat but, Hamilton on on any off days. But I'm more I'm more saying that in terms of a good season for Bottas, he does not have to beat Hamilton over the season. He needs to be troubling him and pressuring him and sort of settle into the Rosberg thing but he doesn't need to be kind of way ahead of him because that's just not not going to happen but it does mean that the interesting thing is you have to say as it stands at the moment Sebastian Vettel is probably the most likely championship rival if the Red Bull's good enough both Daniel Ricciardo and Max Verstappen are eminently capable of fighting for the championship and I think Ricciardo in particular would be a formidable rival because I think he's got absolutely everything Verstappen might still have a few very slight rough edges uh, brilliant as he as he already is although sort of 12 months down the line with experience if he's built experience of a title fight he'll be just about unstoppable but it does look like yeah, Hamilton Vettel is the most likely so what what do we expect to see there Vettel's been a an interesting driver over the last 12 months hasn't he I feel like I know him less well than I did five or six years ago you know you, you used to kind of know who Sebastian Vettel was and now that he's retreated behind uh, or, or has been allowed to retreat behind a firewall at Ferrari, for, Ferrari have very gladly been complicit in his requirement to not have to do much media. So you, you, you get this weird situation where we see almost, we, we don't see much more of him than the viewers at home do because he's kept behind behind the wall and he obviously likes it that way it's contractually enshrined he's assisted by a ferrari press regime that couldn't even spell pr and uh, i just kind of feel that, that is possibly a negative for him and maybe if he actually was held to account a bit more every now and then and was allowed to share his frustration outside the the team radio arena he might actually be able to knuckle down and do a better job because quite frankly Raikkonen showed him the way a few times last year which you wouldn't really have expected him to do otherwise. I think the fact that Raikkonen got near Vettel last year reflects more on Vettel's fall than Raikkonen's climb as well. I didn't like the Vettel that we saw as last year went on you know he was back to 2014 sulky I don't mind if he doesn't want to do that many media calls you know I, I I sympathise with the drivers sometimes, the amount of times they have to answer the same question day after day on a Grand Prix weekend. But it is everything else. It's the radio, it's the general sulking, it's the attitude. That was obvious whenever you saw him in the paddock and when the brief times that he did speak to the media. The the spring in his step that he refound for 2015 was gone by the middle of last year. And I just think there are times where if things aren't going your way, 
that is the time to to knuckle down to to rally the troops you're the guy who should be the inspiration you know how many times did michael schumacher in the 90s drag a ferrari that shouldn't have been fighting for a world championship into a world championship fight vettel i think even if the ferrari had got close as the year went on last year you know vettel didn't even seem up for the fight with red bull really by the end and i think that that was what worried me I like the Vettel that wants to have fun in a paddock. He was poking fun at Hamilton and Rosberg in 15. He was enjoying being the sort of jester on the outside of the championship fight, almost gearing himself up for 2016. But when it didn't happen, you know, he just deflated. It's disappointing for Vettel, actually. I rate Sebastian Vettel very highly. He is a good guy. He has a good out. Well, he used to have a good outlook on, on things, certainly in his, in his Red Bull time. I was prepared to excuse 2014 as a bit of a one-off. The car wasn't so competitive. And maybe after the years of relentlessly winning championships, you can kind of excuse that. But I don't think last year was really excusable. Because, as you were saying, Glenn, you want to see a driver who is dragging the absolute maximum from the car all the time. And, you know, you're a top driver. If the best of the car can finish is fourth and you've got to haul it to fourth, it's not really acceptable to say, well, the car really should be winning. I want to be winning. Well, I don't really care if I'm fourth, fifth or sixth. And actually, that can become quite sort of self-destructive. And I think you do need to see, if the car's strong, you'll expect to see Vettel doing well. But also, the, the worrying thing is, if he gets into a position where, let's say, Ferrari starts strong and then Mercedes maybe pull away, and he's got to be kind of almost cast into the Schumacher role of trying to stay in a championship fight with a slightly inferior car, like Alonso did in 2012, is he going to start to get a little bit surly and not do it and just say, well, this car should be great? Because that's the point where you just say, sorry mate you're not doing your ability justice your job's to get the absolute maximum out of this car and that's what you're being paid for and the question is after four world titles i worry about the kind of the fundamental motivation of a driver i'm sure he wants to win world championships and if the car was mega he'd probably win every week but it's how much do you want exactly to win? do you want to win if the car's mega for a bit and then you have to kind of scrape around turning third places into second places and second places into first places just to nip across the line has he got that in him now I think probably a few years ago he would have done but now you sort of think hang on a minute you know do you actually want to be here or or do you not want to be here I think in his mind he does but there are some worrying signs last year fundamentally the the reason that we as human beings have legs and walk around and have sent ourselves to the moon and whatnot is when did you go to the moon (laughs) sent himself as well didn't even use NASA just sent himself (laughs) just teleported there I'm off to the moon (laughs) <laughs> and we, we've we've done great things as a species as i believe hamlet said you know how how in aspect how like a god was, um, that, was that before the the apollo apollo 14 mission hamlet said what that. hamlet yes i think so okay just making sure um how noble in aspect uh, i can't even remember the soliloquy but that's a, that's a fantastic bit of quoting there <laughs> <laughs> probably i should have read ham i should have i should have read act three scene one before uh coming in here today but my point is that at some point in millions and millions of years ago, our ancestors hauled themselves out of the primordial soup rather than sitting in it complaining about how crap the water quality was. And it's because it's about the struggle. That is what evolution is about. And, and my fear with uh, Sebastian Vettel is that he's an interesting person and a great driver. But because he's been, uh, he's in a permissive environment where he's allowed to dictate his own terms... Um, I, I think he's actually weakening himself because you, you have to face your demons and overcome them in order to become better. 
and he has set himself up into a place where he doesn't have to confront those demons anymore. He can just do what he wants, and, and I think that's dangerous for him. I've joked in previous podcasts about other drivers getting in a bubble, and if you surround yourself with yes-men, it is the path to lunacy, and the sooner he snaps out of it and remembers that he is a sportsman who is paid not just to drive a car quick, but also to put on a show, to deliver value for his sponsors, and to entertain the many people uh, the, the many millions of people all the way around the world who give up their time on a Sunday to watch him perform. And if he does that, he's a quite brilliant driver. He's, you know, there's criticisms that he's not adaptable. The way he adapted to exhaust blown diffuser cars in the past with a very counterintuitive driving side, he's, he's got the whole, all the skills you could possibly want. Yeah, but none like of us say, is sitting here saying he yeah. shouldn't be a four-time world champion. So he's I got think the man uh, we're judging is the man no, we no, saw exactly, at the but, end of last year. But the point is, what a waste if just a weird attitude, a weird approach, squanders that ability. You kind of think yeah. actually, you owe it to yourself, to the fans, to your team to actually make sure you're getting the most out of it. And if that means you know it's not ideal situation, well, how often do you get into an ideal situation in in motorsport? It's not that often. You know, you want to see him getting getting the best out of himself. Well, we've talked a lot about the top three teams. Obviously, Red Bull, a little bit of an unknown quantity. We'll have to wait and see what they produce for Australia. But at the moment, we expect them to be a bit of a slow burner. But it's very clear the top three stand apart from the rest. So, best of the rest. What do we all think? Williams looked pretty good. Haas had their moments in testing. Renault, you would expect to be getting into that that sort of position. There's, there's a lot of teams in that clump. Force India, of course. Williams, Williams surprised me, actually. Um Firstly, we're not used to them showing anything in testing or even in free practice, actually. They seem to be obsessed with running with as full a fuel tank as they can. And I don't know why whether they're trying to outfox people and then just qualifying 10th anyway. So I did wonder why we saw so much of them. I think even Daniel Ricciardo said, I hope Williams have shown their hand. They, they look so good at one point. And if they have, that's a marked change. Much like we said about Ferrari have gone the other way and maybe weren't trying to show their hand. It felt like Williams were. And is that... Is that something that's changed in the absence of Pat Simmons? Maybe they want to say, you know, it's all well and good running heavy all the time, but you still need to know what the car is actually going to do when it's light, rather than actually just predicting what it's going to do and hoping that your simulations are accurate. Could it be that they're desperate to show a little bit of improvement? It it could just be the case that they have shown their hand because after all those years of under-delivering, they kind of want to show a bit of value to... I, I don't know who, but you know, we, we I suppose we will see whether they carry on doing that once uh, Mr. Lowe has got his feet under the table and built his empire and worked out who's possibly a lightweight, who's not a lightweight, and once he's rearranged the technical personnel to his liking, we might see a little bit of a change of culture. I think whatever the reason for it, it's probably good practice to run with fairly variable fuel loads, etc. Because I know Gary Anderson was giving an example with, uh, I think it was the 97 Jordan, he said, that was flying throughout testing, but then they struggled to get tyre temperature in for qualifying when they took all the fuel out. And, you know, you need to know how the car behaves in different circumstances and different situations. And I think the Williams logic was always to run fairly heavily on fuel to give a consistent platform to understand your changes. And that's logical most of the time. But when you've got eight days of running pre-season, you do want to get a feel for the car in a range of different conditions. And although you'll get down to lower fuel if you do a full race simulation, you still want to know roughly what the car's doing in qualifying. And then if there is a tyre warm-up problem, that kind of thing, you can get a feel for it. That You know, it's all about, testing is all about knowledge and data and understanding the car 
not just fundamentally, but in all the different conditions you're going to encounter as far as you can replicate them in February and March at Barcelona. Yeah, I said Williams, it was a surprise to me to see them doing quite so well. I'd sort of written them off under this rules package because it felt like over the previous three years, as as the engine became a less dominant factor and you were back to relying on the aero, Williams couldn't keep up in that area. So with a, an aero-heavy formula, I was just expecting them to continue the slide, if anything, to accelerate back towards um, you know where they where they were before 2014. I hope they've I hope they've turned it around, and I hope Paddy Lowe can make a difference. He's not going to make a difference immediately. He only started work there last week, um, but I think it would be a pleasant surprise if Williams have turned it around again, and that would bode very well because it would show that any aero weakness they've had in the last couple of years has been addressed. I suppose the big question with Williams is is driver wise. Ricky Lance Stroll, who had uh, had a few high profile moments in testing, but ultimately, you know, still set some reasonable lap times, and the, the unretired Felipe Massa. You know, is that a match for at Force India, Perez and Ocon? No. A match for at Renault, Hulkenberg and Palmer? A match no. for at Haas, Grosjean and uh, Magnussen? That's who Probably it is. Not. Grosjean Magnuson. and Magnussen. <laughs> it's these people who change teams. You get so used to it. You want to say Gutierrez, but no, it's uh, they've upgraded to, upgraded to Magnussen. So that for me is the big question there. It's tricky. Uh, I'm interested in what Glenn thinks about this because to my mind, Massa hasn't, he hasn't forgotten how to, drive a Formula One car, but as, as I said a few moments ago, he is kind of long past the twilight of his career, and if this car is good enough to stick another 50p in the meter, then maybe so, we'll enjoy a little bit more light. The question then is is what Lance can do, and uh, I've met him, I've interviewed him, I've watched his junior career, he's he's not slow, he's, he's a quick driver, he doesn't lack in self-confidence. And he's also very sensible and grown up for an 18-year-old. But uh, historically, he has needed to kind of almost get over a hump in terms of getting some results before it kind of a little switch goes in his brain and he actually believes for real and the results start to come. It's as if he's kind of a little bit almost uptight and trying too hard. And then once he gets that result, he stops trying too hard and then more and more results come. And that's how he won the Formula 3 championship last year. Pretty, pretty, pretty clinically once he'd got on the roll towards the end of the year and he beat some pretty handy drivers. It wasn't as if he got it on a plate. He had a he had a team that was built around him and teammates that had to basically had to cooperate because there was one family paying all the bills. But I don't like to sort of categorise him as a pay driver because there are two type I think there are two types of drivers with budget. There are the ones who have the budget to get the best equipment and get the best opportunities and make the most of them. I think you could include Lewis Hamilton in that. You know, he had anything he needed from McLaren in his junior career, he got it, providing he then delivered and he would get it again at the next step. I think Stroll is closer to that than he is to, say, a Pastor Maldonado or, or you know, the, the pay drivers we saw in the 90s who were just getting seats that they didn't earn. I I said something after the first test that if Stroll goes on to have a really good career, that first week of testing will be put down as a Michael Schumacher or a Gilles Villeneuve-esque finding the limits week. And I think it's interesting what Codders said about him needing to get over a hump in that respect, testing was the right way around. You know, he had the troubles in week one, but his mileage was fantastic in week two. He just, he did just pound round and pound round. There were no, no repeats of those mistakes. Williams were saying in the first week that both of their drivers were unhappy with something you touched on earlier about the tyres, Ed, in that they, they didn't like the sort of 
lack of warning you almost get from the way they break away. So if that was something that Massa was struggling with as well, as someone who's very experienced in F1, and the team have been able to tackle it, it might be already that the weakness that seemed to expose Stroll in week one has gone away. And, you know, let's, let's give him a chance. I, I expect that, you know, he can he can deliver. I would say, though, that much as we were talking about Bottas, he has got to beat Massa this year if he's to convince people he's deserving of a place in F1 long term. So what do we think? Who's, who's going to be fourth come the end of the season, Constructors' Championship? You'd say from testing Williams are the kind of team you'd say has kind of slotted into fourth. Yeah, the, but the Force India are a funny question. one, weren't they? Yeah. They're really quiet and the car didn't look great from trackside and it'd be very easy to just categorise them as, oh, well, they were good, then there's a rule change. They couldn't afford to keep up. They've messed it up. Maybe they were keeping their cards close to their chest. I always think it's a very good idea not to underestimate Force India. No, they've got some very clever people several, there, haven't Several they? times in the past few years I've thought, yeah, up to sixth in the championship, not going to go any further. Yeah, up to fifth in the championship, not going to go any further. Up to fourth, oh, they won't do that again. Oh, they're fourth again. I think that's the thing with Force India. You kind of have to take that position that they've shown they can go through a rule change and thrive out of it. And even, I think the most important thing is even when they have a bit of a shaky start, they do come on strong. So yeah, that, that may be more the symptom of their being a slightly smaller team that they sometimes have to play catch up a little bit. Maybe the answer to your question about who'll come forth is very much bound into the the truism that both drivers have to score. So if we kind of look at those driver partnerships and which of them is most likely to have both drivers scoring at any given point, that then gives you your probability. Because we, we've looked at Williams and we've kind of thought maybe Lance Stroll is, is slightly shaky beginning of the season prospect for scoring then you look at uh, Force India you've got Perez who now seems to have shaken that business of only turning up every other race or and sometimes going on the missing list Ocon you know do you, do you think he's now in a position to score yeah he will be he's a proper driver Ocon he's got half a season experience I would imagine he will break his points duck pretty early on I think Mercedes made quite a thing of saying that it was Force India's decision for um, Ocon to get that seat over Verline because they're both Merck juniors. The simple fact is, if Mercedes didn't think Force India had made the right decision, I'm sure they'd have got involved. You know, Ocon has long been very highly rated. And yeah, I think this is his time to shine. The interesting one is Renault, I think. They should, I think they'll struggle a little bit at the start, but they should come on as the season goes on. If Nico Hulkenberg properly sheds himself from any question of midfield syndrome and realises that yes this is a works team I need to be absolutely on it every week and delivers what he can he could be a really potent force there and we've seen that Palmer can get in the points can score consistently so maybe Renault could come through I suspect it'll be a slightly slow start for them so you're looking kind of at Renault and Force India as maybe the the slow burners that can overhaul Williams and I guess Haas You'd have to say, given Haas struggled a little bit last year always to get the most out of their package, it's a bit fanciful to think they could over a year be fourth. But I think there's some, there's potentially some good results it's, in that car, especially with a good good pair of drivers. Yeah, there. JP's done pretty well, hasn't he? I thought his, to, to my mind, his only real slap yourself, you know, bang your head against the wall and then slap it moment was in Hungary when he was nailed on for points and threw it off. I thought his uh, his first season F1 actually reflected almost his entire career up to that point, which was start slightly underwhelming, get written off by a load of people and just keep working at it and keep your head down and gradually start to change people's mind and prove them wrong. He he did that coming up through the ranks and he was in GP2 a long time, but he was relatively inexperienced when he first got there. 
And he just did such a good job that he took someone like Felipe Nazar in GP2, who was highly rated at the time, and he put him in the shade. So I'm glad he's got a second chance. I think one of the big things actually with the midfield this year is that you've got teams like Renault and, mate, well, before testing, we just said McLaren, who were probably looking at fourth place going, yeah, we need to slot in behind those big teams. But teams like Force India, possibly Williams, Haas, if they can sort a few problems out, you know, they're still going to be testing different brake solutions early in the year, which is a bit worrying. Even Torosso, that, that car looked pretty good until it hit the track. So I believe there's some Renault problems there. But if all those smaller teams are going to make the two perhaps big teams that would fancy fourth, it's going to make their jobs a lot harder than perhaps we've seen in years gone by. You could easily find yourself on sort of row eight or row nine if you have a bad day instead of maybe on the fringe of the top 10. With that in mind, do you think that Carlos Sainz is someone we should be talking about because he's really able to get a good performance out of a car in qualifying and back it up with a solid race performance? And that's really going to count when, if you think the top three are going to colonise one, two, three, four, five, six, this battle for fourth place in the constructors is all about who's going to come seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, and maybe poach some of the higher it is almost a race within a race isn't it you've got all these teams who will be aiming to qualify seventh and to race seventh on merit and then just sort of pick up the pieces of the other teams and that's that's going to be fascinating because i think it's going to be really really tight mclaren obviously (laughs) we briefly touched on the fake news saga earlier but things really didn't look good for mclaren in testing the honda engine isn't isn't really there the car itself as we we discussed isn't isn't, really there isn't really there so how has this happened three years into the McLaren Honda Alliance? They are in so much trouble. It is, and after so many years of being woeful, from 2013 on, it's been excuse after excuse. And we're in a situation now where you try throwing money at a problem and throwing money Honda's brings money at the problem. Yeah, throwing Honda's money at the problem. You, you look at their accounts, there's a black hole in the accounts for the past few seasons because of less money coming in through sponsorship. You have the diminishing prize money coming in uh, through dropping in the Constructors' uh, Championship standings. Uh, And and you have a a now former uh, boss of the organisation who actively chased money sponsors away because he had an excessively inflated idea of how much a title sponsorship was worth even at the same time as he was saying that there was no such thing as title sponsorship uh it is so dysfunctional that i can't see an easy way of making it more functional in the short term and they've had plenty of time to sort it out well this is year three of the the honda program isn't it didn't fernando alonso sign for mclaren and honda because it was all about a championship charge in 2017 you know they're, they're further away from that than ever as far as I'm concerned, it's. I know they're in a very long-term deal, but it's game over now for this. I, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, and that's why they've they've sounded out Mercedes about an engine supply. It's if they can up. get themselves out of the Honda deal and somehow plug that huge gap in the budget that Honda's contributing, then put a Merc engine in it, and we'll see how good the car, the chassis, really is. It's feeling like that, isn't it? I think the two sides are getting. It seems to be just like a little, just the aggro growing, and I think both sides are realizing it. It's just, it's just not it's working. Broken. But, but the, the bad thing for McLaren is okay, they can go and get a Mercedes deal, but they're not the frontline Mercedes team by any stretch of the imagination. So it's almost well, they'd be picking up the Manor deal. That's well, why exactly, there's potentially yeah. one on the table. They'd almost be accepting their lot as right. Well, we were a few years ago one of the top F1 teams, but we're now accepting we're actually well, this is because the of thing. this gradual slip back. We're now 
kind of in that. Yeah, I, I think they, they've got to accept that. They've got to stop pretending that they were a top team just waiting to unleash themselves. And they've got to accept where they are and understand that actually the only way they can start to turn it around is to be a customer team, realise what your level is, beat the other customer teams, and then maybe you can turn it around and turn yourself into something proper in the future. But I'm I'm convinced that if they did put a Merck engine in the back... It's not going to suddenly be winning races. I think their sense of entitlement needs to follow Ron Dennis out of the door, really, because they've been cruising on it for They've run out of credits. Long. They've run out of credits now. And ultimately, it's just a real shame, isn't it? Because you want to see good big teams doing well. Don't you? you want to see as many good teams at the front succeeding, and you feel like McLaren hasn't really done a great job of doing it. If you look at its record in the 21st century, it's not exactly championship-laden, even when the car was was consistently good. So... You know, there's only so long that goodwill and patience and, oh, they'll come back can actually be applied to them before you have to say, do you know what? It's a a decent, mid-ranking, solid F1 team. Great. One with an illustrious past. So it is Tyrrell or Williams or something rather than the future, if you like. It's going back to how McLaren was in the... uh... (laughs) That's what they should get. The thing (laughs) is, a decent mid-grid Formula 1 team doesn't get another world champion calibre driver like Fernando Alonso in next year when he inevitably walks. You know, he's at the end of his contract. He's not going to sign another one. And they're going to have to hope that Stoffel Van Dorn's the real deal because they are not going to be able to put another real deal in that seat. You know, Alonso was sold, Alonso with no options, was sold on the premise of you will, you'll be fighting for the world championship in three years. That's not happened. I don't think anyone else is going to be naive enough to fall for that sell over the course of this year, when they may be looking for a driver to replace Alonso, they're going to end up with a solid hand replacing him. And then even if you do turn the car around and get things going in the right direction, you're not going to be capable of those headline-grabbing results because you haven't got Alonso in the car. Saying that, I'm a massive fan of Van Dorn, and I think he can spook Alonso this year, particularly if Alonso's too busy having a sulk on the radio. But going back to the front, our final point is going to be prediction, Australian GP winner and... World Championship driver and constructors winner. Codders, you can go first. Uh, I think that uh, possibly, I, I think a spark plug cap's going to fall off Lewis's car and he won't win. And that something very weird happened and Kimi Raikkonen will, will, will win for Ferrari and uh, Lewis Hamilton will win the World Championship. Excellent. Glenn, what are you going for? Uh, on, a, on a similar note, I, I think I think Vettel will win, win the first race. Um, Melbourne's the kind of place where Slightly crazy things can happen. I'm currently putting together a list for all sports YouTube channel along those lines. So I think, yeah, we'll get a little bit of an upset, or you could call it an upset, in that well, we won't have a Mercedes victory in Australia, but I do think Lewis will win the championship. I'm going to go with a slightly different approach. I think championship, Lewis Hamilton, Mercedes, because I think even if the Ferrari... That's not different. That's exactly what no, we said. <laughs> I'm doing the same bit first. I, I build it as different. On the basis that I think even if the Ferrari is up there, I think probably operationally... Mercedes have maybe got the edge and that could make the difference. Australian GP, I'm going for Valtteri Bottas. Oh, nice. I think, uh, I think Lewis Hamilton might have a bit of bad luck. And I think Valtteri, you know, he's got a good qualifying lap in him. And I think certainly one, one of the first few races you're going to get to the end of the qualifying, people are going to go, blimey, didn't realise he had that pace in him. He's good at low grip as well, isn't he? Oh, he's really Obviously good, yeah. That, that's why he's grip. always so impressive in FP1. So with the scene set and lots of inaccurate predictions, that will probably give you no clear indication of what's actually going to happen. Keep your eye on autosport.com for all the latest up to the second news and coverage on what is actually happening. 
You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, and also I think F1 Racing can be found in the world of social media as well, as we discussed earlier. Remember, Autosport Magazine will be out the Thursday after the Australian Grand Prix with an in-depth look at goings-on, and we'll also have the uh, the preview issue with McLaren on the cover out uh, the week before that. And you can also still pick a copy of F1 Racing's bumper season preview uh, issue as well. But as, as Codders warns, make sure you don't drop it on the cat. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. When we were eat, eating some cheese last night, we had the cheese board out. We had guests. Are you recording this? Uh, and um, uh, one of one of the Miss, Mrs. Godling was explaining to our guests which the cheeses were, and she said, uh, "This one, I think it's sel sur cher or something like that." So I said, "Do you believe in life after cheese?" <laughs> and you wonder why people don't listen to you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.